we had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way. And I, I, I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,222 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. How are you, Melissa? I'm well, thank you. Good to see you. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Well, tr the truth or... <laughs> no, I want you to lie to me. I, I, I want you to lie to me. Okay, um, I'm, I, I've just been doing great. Everything is going my way. I've had no problems. Well, that's good. That means everything has been off, right? <laughs> that's it, yeah. It's been one of those uh, chunks of time where if it could go wrong, it has gone wrong. But I think that's life. Yeah, yeah, that is how it goes. I normally ask you what you have been up to the last couple of weeks and what you'd like to talk about. But before I do that, I thought, and I haven't heard it yet. I'm going to, but I haven't heard it yet. Okay. But I was looking at your latest podcast that you posted, I believe it was last week. And again, <laughs> I haven't had a chance to, to watch it or well, to watch it, to listen to it yet. But I have to say, I am impressed with all of the topics that you covered. I, I've got it up here on the screen above me. And... <laughs> You have covered literally just a little bit of everything in the last, I think, 20 years. <laughs> that is that is impressive. Without giving too much away, would you like to tell us about it? Well, which one are you looking at? Because I'm looking I've at, actually... yeah, I'm looking at uh, Neil Foster, Would I Lie to You? Oh, that was a fun one. Yeah. I see just about everything. I see it, what caught me was like the beginning of it is raising chickens, beekeeping and gardening update and true grassroots environmentalism. And then when I clicked on show me more and I saw all the other things that you covered in there, I thought, oh, my goodness, we have got to talk about some of that stuff. <laughs> that so, was a fun episode. I would say so. I'm looking forward to listening to that. So, w again, without giving too much away, would you like to tell us about it? Well, I'm talking to Neil once a month now, the second Thursday of every month. And he's been doing some interesting projects. So I always like to get an update on that. He's been gardening for a while. He also likes to fish and he catches and freezes fish for them to eat. And usually if, if I speak to him away from when we're recording, he'll, he'll be leaving the conversation. He'll say, well, we've got family coming over and I'm making fish. So... <laughs> So that is feeding them. And then he has started beekeeping in the last, oh, I don't know. I lose track of time. But I think this is the last four or five months. And that's going well. He just split the hive and started a second hive because you have to do that when the hive creates a new queen. You split it. Mm -hmm. So he did that successfully. And then he they've just started with ch chickens. They got hen, little chicks. And they'll be laying what he said at least by the end of the year. Now he built the the chicken coop, which is really quite nice. That looks like they have a lot of room and it's quite secure from predators. And there are little chicks that are growing quite quickly. Mm -hmm. so yeah, they, they do grow they've quick. Got nine of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they grow fast. I I remember when I was in my early twenties, I had a uh, had a job at a local uh, shop, and they sold uh, chickens once a year. And you know, it was just a it was one of those jobs like you know, college and, you know, you got to work like a part time job. We got them in as, you know, just baby chicks. And we used to sell them. I think it was like two or three dollars for at the time for each one of them. Sometimes no one would buy them and they ended up getting like 
you know, halfway to, to full size. And then we ended up almost giving them away to people because we couldn't do anything with them. But they grow fast within, I don't know, two or three months. They're, they're almost full grown. That's what he said that, you know, he said he didn't know if they would start laying, for, you know, until closer to the end of the year. But mm-hmm. he expected them to be full grown and by the age of three months. So. But it's all new to him. But and then the the grassroots environmentalism is interesting because because he's a fisherman there on his local lake, he pays attention to what's going on on the other lakes. And he stumbled across a, a true grassroots environmentalist, someone who is holding the fish, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission to Ta- he's taken them to task because they ha- they're not honest, they're not transparent, they're a public agency. They're the ones who are supposed to keep all of the lakes um, fishable. Uh, they give you your hunting and fishing license, they're, and they are supposed to. They advertise that they conserve, but what they're doing is spraying the water plants, like the water hyacinth and other plants that the birds actually need. There, there's a type of snail called the apple snail, and it's got to have plants to lay its eggs. And the there is a bird, a beautiful bird called the snail kite, and it only eats apple snails. And the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission has just outright lied and said that all of those water plants have to be cleared out so that the birds can find the snails that they need to eat. But it's the opposite that's true. The plants are essential for the survival. The second component is that all of the toxins that they spray into the lake to kill these plants is killing the fish. It also killed a bunch of alligators, which is terrible because they're part of the ecosystem, but it's killing the fish and diseasing them and making them deformed. And they filmed a some kind of Zoom meeting with the different people that are on that commission. And they asked them, had they tested the water for toxins for pesticide? And there was lots of, uh, uh... Uh, and then finally, Safe one of them no. said, "Well, yeah, it's a com- he said it's complicated because we don't really have the labs to do so. So yes, in all don't. of Florida, <laughs> <laughs> so these guys just sent a couple of dead fish to the University of Georgia, had them tested, and lo and behold, they came back high in a couple of pesticide, a couple of toxins, and mm-hmm. that's what the fishermen are are catching, and it's sad." That is really sad. When I saw that part of it in the in the program description, when I looked at that, my first thought was hearkening back to the uh, the DDT stuff that the government did back in the day. You know, where mm-hmm. they were spraying all over the stuff, all over. Actually, the, I remember seeing the videos, the promo videos. This is before my time, but I remember seeing the promo videos of them spraying kids in local pools. You know, saying that it was mm-hmm. safe, mm-hmm. and and it ended up one of the biggest problems we had with that was with our national bird, our bald eagle. The DDT. I believe it's what it was, actually caused their eggs, like the, the shell around the eggs that they laid to break down. And mm-hmm. as a result, the, and that's why the, that's part of the reason why they became endangered was that there's never any accountability when these people no. do things like this. Never. But no, if you do not. something, yeah, if you do something that's not even, I guess it's not even damaging to the environment. It's whatever they claim to be is damaging to the environment. Then you're at fault and they throw the book at you. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that this grassroots guy was pointing out, you know, and and Neil mentioned he had heard about a case where somebody got four years in prison for killing an alligator. There have been several stories. I found several where people had killed an alligator and had gotten charged with a, you know, a big crime. But when the government agency sprays so heavily that they just come floating dead, you know, up to the surface... Uh, it's not a crime. <laughs> no, no, it's never a crime if, if they do it. That's going to be an interesting episode. I look forward to listening to that. Again, you know, without giving too much away, thank you for that, uh, that little preview, I guess. Yeah. What else has been on your radar for the last couple of weeks? Well, someone sent me something about, I'm not going to say what the Institute is right now because I'm going to start covering it, I think, in talks. But it doesn't really matter that I don't give that one away. What it really led me to was thinking about foundations, how they're funded, how long they've been funded, what they do, what kinds of so, chiefly social programs uh, go into effect because of foundation money. 
And so I decided to read a book that Alan talked about a lot, which is uh, it's by Renee Wormser or Wormser, and it's called Foundations, Their Power and Influence. So I started reading that book uh, just the other day, and I'm going to read that and do a series of some of Alan's talks and excerpts from his talks where he talks about foundations and how they shape policy and how they affect uh, the culture and change the way that we think about things. And one of the things, I I wonder if I marked it here, because it is kind of interesting. Um, This book was published after the Reese Commission, which is a fairly well-known commission from night that happened in 1954. And it was the follow-up of the Cox Commission, which was the Congress that ran in 1952. And out of the one of the advisors on the Reese Commission was a tax attorney, Renee Wormser. And he was compelled, he felt compelled after his work there to dive a little bit deeper and uncover some of the influence that foundations had that they weren't able to cover in a Congress-backed commission. And so out of that came this book, which was published initially in 1958. And I've marked a few things here, and I want, hopefully, uh, hopefully I can find them here. But one of the things that, this is just right from the introduction, it says the American Foundation is a social invention created to contribute to the improvement of the public welfare. And I thought, well, right off the bat, that's an untruth. But at at that time, I'm sure that that's what they thought. Many of these foundations were done strictly for tax avoidance or tax reduction. But the idea that they were contributing to the improvement of public welfare, I don't think that that's how the main ones like Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford Foundation, I think that it was a bit of the tax, but it was about being able to control all aspects of their money, regardless of whether they'd come under scrutiny for monopoly or not. But they had in mind specific agendas that they wanted to bring into being societally. Like, for instance, it mentions in here that the Rockefellers funded Kinsey's work. And Kinsey is still held up as having done significant and important work into human sexuality. But even at that time, or I would say especially at that time, people thought, no, 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 this is a promotion of, this is normalizing child molestation. But in the ensuing years between the 60s and today, that has kind of been put aside And they've taken his pseudoscience and elevated it to the realm of real, of true science. So that's one example of what foundations can do. And Wormser and some of the other people in the panel were giving these foundations the benefit of the doubt. And they specifically called out the big ones like Rockefeller and Carnegie in terms of what they had done for medicine and medical research and public health and said that this was good, but some of the other things that they did were not good. And I thought anyone who has lived through the last three years and knowing some of the big foundations, like specifically Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but knowing the foundation's involvement in shaping public policy around health and I, I don't even want to call it true science because it's completely foundation no, controlled. Pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah is, we're yeah. in the realm of pseudoscience now. Absolutely. So, you know, at this this time that book was written, what is that, like 65 years ago now? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, and they're giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I think at this point, nothing has changed in the way that foundations are supervised or overseen. There, there really is no oversight because the, the money and the power that it brings with it is so immense that literally it is the boards of the foundations who call the shots, not the governments. And like I said, going through the last three years, seeing what a big foundation like Bill and Melinda Gates can do, and not just in one country, but globally, is... It, it, 
unfortunately, I, I hate to say it, but people are so far gone because of the kinds of social sciences that have been at work on the minds of people for that those 65 years and longer, and that they go along, they comply, they obey. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, it makes me wonder, you've read Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, I, I assume. Of course you have. Um, yes. That book, he mentioned in there only once about these foundations. He didn't specifically go into detail about them, but he called them out, you know, the Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, you know, these the, the usuals. Mm -hmm. And he said in there that if we want to understand what's manipulating public policy, then we need to look at the political just the way that it is. We need to look at the connection between the political left. You know, I'm not playing politics here. I'm just pointing out what mm -hmm. the man said in his book. He says we need to look at the political left. We need to make that connection with the tax exempt foundations. And that's mm -hmm. what's driving public policy. Yes. He, he said that when he wrote Tragedy and Hope. And then I looked at, um, I think I recommended another book to you. It was by, uh, I have it back here. Uh, it's, it's by Robert Chandler. Uh, it's called Shadow World. And he talks yes. about the NGOs in there and how that goes back to the founding of the Institute for Policy Studies. And that's in the U.S. side. And that is connected to the Transnational Institute, which is the European arm of the same thing. And these are all organizations that are run through the United Nations now. The Institute for Policy Studies is, is like the crux of that. And that was founded by a guy named Samuel Rubin. And Samuel Rubin was a guy that was in business with or had a business partner named Armin Hammer. <laughs> who, I always see his name come up, right? And this is the same guy that put Biden in the Senate and Al Gore in the Senate, junior and senior. Yes, yes. This was Lenin's capitalist. You know, this is the guy. This is the yes. guy that was that was in business with uh, with Lenin and those guys in the new economic policy at the Soviet Union. It goes back to that. And then, of course, Samuel Rubin comes along and he was the guy that bought out the Fabergé fortune. You know, the Fabergé eggs, the fam that yes. family. He bought yes. that. He bought that family out for, I want to say at the time, it was in the book, uh, I want to say he only paid like $25,000 for the entire Fabergé name from the family because the family was hurting for money financially. And so he bought them out for 25000 which back in the early 1900s, that's a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. But he bought them out and he ended up selling it for, I don't know how many millions. And then he founded this, this uh, Institute for Policy Studies that his daughter named Cora Weiss, uh, and I can't remember what her husband's name was, but they... Are still involved to it or with it to this day. They run organizations like, and you can look this one up. This is a big one. They run organizations like uh, the Riverside Church. I'm sure you've heard of the Riverside Church before. Yes, yes. Yeah, these organizations, and and we were. I've lightly touched on this last week uh, with Bruce. The amount of NGOs at the UN has gone from, I think, pre 1990, it was somewhere in almost the single digits. I mean, it was it was almost nothing. Now we're in the tens of thousands of NGOs mm -hmm. and, and tax exempt foundations. And it's just turned into a money laundering service. You know, that's that's all it is. And mm -hmm. nothing nothing ever gets done. Everything's a bureaucracy. The money's all gummed up in, in all the works that they do. And if you look at any of these big foundations, such as the ones that you were mentioning, very little of their actual money goes towards the projects that they actually promote. Everything yes. goes towards operational costs, administrative, travel, salaries, and everything else. And the philanthropic stuff that they do, such as like Bill Gates and George Soros with his Open Society Foundation and, and all the rest of this stuff. The George Soros thing, you had talked about and you did a little bit of digging on that. You spoke on it a, a few podcasts ago. <laughs> That's part of the reason that we have this migration crisis that's happening in the West, is yes. you have to deal with guys like George Soros and his outfit that run these charities that have a deal with MasterCard and the United Nations to bring them here. That's right. So it's just a like this whole thing is just like this vicious cycle. And there's no rhyme or, or reason why we actually need these things. And most people don't even know that they exist. As you said, they've been socially engineered so much to this point, and they're so turned around and everything that they just can't even think. That's that is true. And but what is interesting to me about the book so far, and I'm only, you know, maybe 30 pages into it, 35 pages into it. But what is interesting what is how much awareness that they had at the time of the direction that the foundations were going in. They mentioned another congressional commission that had happened, I think back in 1919, about 
the early foundations. And at that time, the concern was that the foundations had a capitalistic bent and were moving things too far to the right. But already by the 1950s, and I, the, the, the direction had been towards what they called in the book Marxist ideology. Marxism was apparent in the programs and the social programs that were being run through most of the big foundations. And what has changed in the last 65 years? Nothing. It's only gotten worse because they've been successful. What, what they're talking about are interlocking boards. You know, so you have board members on one foundation, board members on another foundation, and then they're also a board, they are a member of a board on a major university, and they might be a member of a board on a major um, hospital chain or scientific research facility. So these interlocking boards then decide where things go socially. And even if you have the the basic modicum of transparency where you make available to the general public what your operating expenses are, where the money goes, where the grants are, who's receiving the grants, how much money. But that is just the barest possible oversight that you can have because what is not happening is anyone who is actually following this and saying, this is shaping uh, foreign policy because many of these foundations, as you know, are deep into foreign policy. So this is a really important thing. There, and no one is um, no one is studying the effects that these interlocking boards have on shaping what what they called at the time of writing the book propaganda. So, and I I say that no one is covering this because. The media is, of course, in collusion, but who are on the boards of the companies that own the media, right? So, again, it's these interlocking boards. And then academia are the first and earliest adopters of the mindset. And they're even talking here 65 years ago in this book about the tragedy that is the end of creativity. because. They make, a, they make the point of telling the reader that prior to the ubiquitous foundations, a single scientist, one scientist might write a paper. He might embark on a research project, but then they add the second scientist or they add someone from a different research institute or someone from a different university. Well, you go on these, you see these published papers now. I do. So many of them are have how many scientists on them? Eight, 10 authors, you know, so it's this. So what they were bemoaning 65 years ago is groupthink because genius comes from one person. Worms are even made the comment in there that they're trying to tell you that genius and creativity can be a group enterprise. And, you know, well, that's a whole that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure. But. Yeah, I, I can I can I can see just as a casual observer the end of creative thinking on most things. Everything is consensus nowadays. It, it is. And I, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. I was actually thinking about this today and yeah. I started on it last night. I'm studying something else, but it's related to what you're talking about, oddly. I'm studying Nuclear war strategy. I, I I know it's just it's, strange, but that's what I've been studying. I mean that's 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 where I'm at right now, because some crazy person has parked about 400 nuclear warheads 800 miles from my front door. So I need to start learning. I'm not concerned about it, but whatever. But the the thing that that I've been hearing, and and I I listen to all kinds of stuff, and I get all kinds of different viewpoints just to kind of go with my own thought. And I I listen to things throughout my day when I'm doing my usual stuff. And I've been listening to, uh, I I was listening to this podcast the other day. This is a, I'm not going to say who, because I'm not, I'm not going to be accused of slander, but I was listening to a major conservative podcaster. Okay. Everybody knows who this is. I'm not going to say who it is, but this individual had on a senior fellow 
I don't know whatever that means, of one of these conservative think tanks, right? So these are one of these uh, foreign policy advisory people, you know, they they write papers and they write books and, and everything else. This is an individual that sits as a senior fellow, as in like one of their top most respected people within this this conservative think tank in London. And they write papers for this thing and this group, and they've been doing this for years, and they've got all kinds of books published and everything. And I'm listening to what they're saying. I'm I'm listening very carefully to what they're saying. And they are echoing the talking points coming out of Beijing. This is concerning. This is extremely (laughs) concerning. The talking points that are coming out of Beijing and Moscow are being echoed by conservative think tanks that influence our foreign policy and are being picked up by conservative hosts here in the West that have millions upon millions of followers, and they're taking it as truth. This is a serious problem. I, I know what you mean, I, I, but I will, we'll talk about that in a second. But because this has been on my mind, and I was thinking about how uh, we live really sadly in a, a veil of deception that is all-encompassing, and I guess that's what is meant by cutting through the matrix, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I'm, and, I'm like, I'm, I'm, well, I'm listening to this with my jaw hanging open. I'm like, these people can't be serious. I'm yeah, sorry, I didn't well, mean to interject, but you're no, absolutely that's right. No, that's okay. I mean, one thing that Alan, I don't know that he said it that much on air, but you know, he said to me a time or two that we are looking through a glass darkly. And this is a a biblical thing, I think, maybe from the book of Corinthians. But in other words, we we are only able to see a small amount of reality. And you can study and study and study, but we're up against this behemoth. And so we, you know, we're looking through a dark glass. But I remembered when I was thinking about that of something that Alan liked to quote a lot. And it was, I I don't remember now, you might be able to help me come to it, but there was a policy advisor to a president. He was interviewing, I think his name was Ronald Susskind from the New York Times in an article about Elder George W. Bush. And the article from the New York Times is entitled, as I pulled it up before we spoke, it's from 2004. Ron Suskind is the author, and the title of the article is Faith, Certainty, and the Presidency of George W. Bush. The article itself is not particularly interesting because it's the New York Times. It's a mainstream publication with a certain spin, and you're supposed to view, you know, you can criticize Bush but you're still going to walk away with a spin that this is all very real and Bush is doing the best that he can, right? Mm -hmm. But the quote that was mentioned in there that Alan liked to read, and I'm just going to preface it from the paragraph above that where Susskind says, in the summer of 2002, after I had written an article in Esquire that the White House didn't like about Bush's former communications director, Karen Hughes, I had a meeting with a senior advisor to Bush. Now, that's that um, that you can help me figure out who the senior advisor is. I used to have it at the top of my head, but it's gone now. Um, he expressed the White House's displeasure. And then he told me something that at the time I didn't fully comprehend, but which I now believe gets to the very heart of the Bush presidency. And I'll just interject here. I think this gets to the very heart of the way that reality is presented to all of us and why it is so, why we're looking through the, the dark glass. So the aide said and that guys like me, Suskind, were in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. I nodded and murmured something about enlightenment principles and empiricism. He cut me off. That's not the way the world really works anymore, he continued. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors. And you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. 
Why do I? I feel like that's and this was an advisor to George Bush Jr. But I feel like he might have been involved with Senior. That sounds like Carl Rove. It was Carl Rove. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, all right. Carl Rove. It just now, as soon as you say that, as soon as you said that yeah. they decide reality, I'm like, that's Carl Rove. I've heard him say yeah, that no, before. No, this was it. This was actually about the article was about Bush Senior, and it was oh, okay. it was yeah, it was Carl Rove. Although Rove and his camp have denied it, there are plenty of people who said no, that's Rove. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely Rove. I've heard him say that before. So yeah. and, and you said through a uh, through a glass darkly. It's interesting. I actually I have a book that I picked up. It's about uh, conflict prevention, management and termination. And this is mm-hmm. written by one of our, uh, our policy uh, institutions, our foreign policy institutions. And the actual title of the book, I haven't read it yet. It's called Through a Glass Darkly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, look, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm even uh, more curious now. I, because I think I do believe that. Okay, so we're at this level. We're podcasters doing our own independent research, um, and I consult with the work of Alan Watt all the time because he just did years and years of the most amazing research, and he had an incredible mind and a depth and breadth of knowledge that is just unequaled. But even so, he would say about himself, it's through a glass darkly. Then if you're getting to somebody like a Suskind, who is probably much more in the know, if you want to think about, you know, publications like the New York Times having the seal of approval, there are still circles within circles or layers within layers of of who's allowed to know what. Mm -hmm. But certainly somebody like a Karl Rove is definitely operating with a set of uh, a set of information that is not available to any of us. This is really interesting. And I've been having some conversations behind the scenes with our other contributors, you know, Bruce and Marty and Ned and these guys. Mm-hmm. One of the problems, you know, I, I mean, I'm doing my own path of research and it's, it's interesting how I can tie all this in. One of the issues that we're running into is that what you just mentioned, these people have access to information that we don't have access to. That's right. I have tried and tried and tried, and I have run into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall to get certain information, papers, books, reports, whatever, and I get stonewalled. I'm running into the problem where we can't get access to books that we need that are written by people at the policymaking level. We can't get access to these things. And it's so much so to the point where you have to go to the gatekeepers, what I call the gatekeepers. Now you have to go to academia. And now here's the bigger problem. I've not mentioned this yet, so you'll be the first to know. And I would love to get your thoughts on this, because when I told this to Bruce last week, he says, this is a new kind of dark age that we're dealing with. I'm looking for a specific book on a specific topic. I've done my searches and every search that I have been able to turn up, this book is only available at the university level. We can't get it as average people. We just can't. Unless, of course, you find somebody that has it and you are prepared to pay four, five, six hundred dollars, pounds or euros, which is just Mm -hmm. unacceptable. I'm sorry. It just Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So if you want access to this, the only libraries that have these types of books are university libraries. Now, how do you get access? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, even then, that's not available to your average university student. No, you are absolutely right. This is even more shocking. So I called a college that I used to attend right now. I have given them money and taken classes and everything else. And I asked them if I could have access to their digital online catalog. And they all but hung up the phone on me as in (laughs) we're not interested in speaking to you right? You're not a student. You're not a professor or anything. So don't call us. Uh So that was a dead end. Then I talked to somebody who works at a university, a major American university. Okay. They work there and they don't even have access to their own Uh university library. This is is unbelievable. Yeah, that is really interesting. I'll tell you something. Uh, This was probably in the Last fall, I went with my brothers to the George W. Bush Library. Which mm-hmm. is oh, a, but that, that was interesting. That, it was interesting. But this will show you how uh, silly and naive I can be sometimes. 
So we went and we did a tour. They were they had on display a lot of George W. Bush's artwork he's been painting. And it's kind of, it's not bad. And, and they had all of the different gifts that uh, George and his wife, whose name has just gone out of my head, but they Barbara. received. Bar- no, that was the elder. Um, no, it was junior. Yeah, yeah. It was both. They both had wives named Barbara. Really? Yes. Oh, well, anyway, they received these amazing gifts from different heads of states and ambassadors. And um, so we were looking at all of that on display. And then we went and had lunch at the little restaurant that they had there. And we just had a nice outing. And we went outside and I said, well, let's go in the archives. And my brothers laughed at me. <laughs> and they said, you can't just go in the archive. And I said, why not? Oh, why not? <laughs> why not? And they said, no, 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 no. This is for pre-approved scholars that have filled out paperwork. And I'm like, oh, bummer. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I mm-hmm. need to make a correction. You were right. I was wrong. George Bush Jr.'s wife was Laura Bush. His daughter's oh, name. It. His daughter's his, name is Barbara. And his, yes, course is, yeah. of course, his mother's name is Barbara. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was it was interesting. It was there were, you know, but it was a definitely a public experience. You know, they had, you know, all of the little Bushisms that that W was always putting his foot in his mouth and saying silly, ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Well, they had they had actually made parody films of that, you know, so he's he's showing that he's got a sense of humor. He can laugh about it on his authorized library and. You know, it was a, it was an interesting outing with my brothers. I enjoyed myself, but I, I I after they laughed at me, I thought, oh, truly, what was I thinking that I could just walk in the archive and say, oh, I'm an independent researcher and I want to go through the archives. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, you're not an expert, ma'am. You know, yeah. I, I was I was mentioning that to um, uh, to one of our other guys, Ned, behind the scenes, and we were talking about not having access to these libraries, and he says, well, these people that are in these universities, he says. They're not going to use them. They're not going to read any of this stuff. They're not going to actually try and put forth opinions that are going to remedy this situation. No. So all of this stuff is is locked behind these these walls. And so we're back, as Bruce said, like this is a new kind of dark age. Because if you remember back in what we call the dark ages in Europe, people couldn't read because they didn't have access to libraries. And the mm-hmm. upper classes, the, the nobilities and the monarchs and everybody else said, no, wait a minute, we can't give people access to this information because then they'll learn how to read and they don't need us anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is the same problem. We're right back to where we started. If people actually start reading serious books and understand what's actually going on, they don't need the media, they don't need the politicians, they don't need any of these these institutions that we have back to the foundations. Why do we need these things? We don't. No. No, and this was one of the points in, in the book, Foundations, Their Power and Influence, is we don't need to have our minds shaped by foundations. This is antithetical to, in this case, the American way of life, but the, the supposedly we're a country that was founded on principles that include what you might call radical individualism and to have your mind shaped in that way is it's the antithesis of of being an individual it is i think that frightens a lot of people i really do i believe a lot of people i mean in case in point the last 3 years people are terrified of having to make an actual decision about something that pertains to themselves they don't want to do that if you mention to somebody uh hey you're going to have to make a decision about something they'll say well i don't want to i, I don't want to do that because you could make the wrong decision and then that could lead you on a path of making multiple wrong decisions and then you're in a place you don't want to be in so mm-hmm. people people they just they don't want to be able to to do this type of uh, evaluation of alternatives and then you just extrapolate out what you think is the best option you make your choice and then you stick with it knowing that it could be the wrong one that's the whole point right that's life we make mistakes mm-hmm. so we learn we become better individuals by making mistakes but we have to learn from those mistakes that's right you know, I had pulled up because I, I was just doing a quick check of, before we started talking of what's going on in the news and the world. And I saw that the media was telling me that where I live, it's really hot. And I'm like, well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, yes, I needed help. A, to- <laughs> there is a killer heat wave that's ravaging <laughs> Europe and it's gonna, It's killed 60,000 people already. Yes. <laughs> 
I'll under- and, you know, the new one, the new one, since you brought that up, the new one yeah. CNN's going with is we now have underground climate change. I just uh, thought, I'd, yes, I thought uh, I'd mention that. But anyway, you have you have well, a heat wave. Go on. I, I, we have a heat wave, and and right next to the article that was telling me about how hot it was across, and there's nothing like this. Then it was talking about the fires in Canada, the ongoing fires, and how it's you know destroying Canada and the air quality in Canada and the trees and the homes and everything that's under siege there. But the air, it's affecting incredibly bad effect on air quality in all of the northern American states. And I remember the, the redux that I put up on Sunday uh, was a good one. It was from 2007, May 10, and, and the, Alan titled it, Don't Drive, Behave, Beehive, or Hitchhiker's Guide to Behavior Modification. And Beehive, he read an I like <laughs> He read an article from the Wilson Quarterly, and this is the Wilson Institute, another, and I looked up, Alan made the comment that you needed to, he was, the article was written by James R. Fleming, and he said it puts him with different affiliations. They're always interesting to look up because the affiliations tell you an awful lot about who's who and who's writing what. And so I looked up the Wilson Institute, and of course, it's public-private. It's not non-governmental, it's governmental, and the government funds it to about 30% of the operating funds, and then it gets private, and of course, you know, they have major benefactors, foundation money, et cetera, et cetera. But for the Wilson Quarterly, in the spring of 2007, James R. Fleming wrote a piece called The Climate Engineers. And he's right on board. The comment that Alan kept making throughout, he would stop and interject as he was reading it. Alan would say, the debate is over. It's not, is there global warming? But the debate is over. It's settled. The science is settled. Trust the science. So I looked up James R. Fleming, who was at an institute, a couple of different things. He was the holder of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Roger Revelle Fellowship in Global Environmental Stewardship. So I'm like, well, what what kind of a thing is that? And I found out a little bit about Roger Revelle. He was one of the early scientists to study anthropogenic global warming. He was born in 1909, and he co-wrote a paper with Hans Suisse, Swiss, S-U, it's like Dr. Seuss, but the E and mm-hmm. the U are reversed. Yeah. So they wrote a paper in 1957, and that was the very first paper to talk about the greenhouse effect. And that paper coined the term global warming. This is 1957. Think about it. This is foundation money helping them publish a paper, and it's now shaping the way that we view the world. So as Alan would always say, and I guess it's true, we're living through a script. So you can't trust anything that you read. And the Wilson Quarterly is supposed to be nonpartisan. Uh-huh. Of course, it's supposed to be nonpartisan. And <laughs> that seems to be that seems to be everything these days. You're not allowed to ask questions. You have to just go with it. Mm-hmm. And and it goes with everything else. You can't look into these things for yourself because you might have a differing of opinion and you might figure out that they're doing nothing but trying to control you and keep you in your little beehive. I, I'm sorry, I'm stuck with that now. <laughs> but that's that's what it is. And do you remember the thing I showed you, the ecto-life thing? Because that whole yes. thing, the baby yes. pod thing, that whole yeah. thing is based on this, this climate change thing. You're going to exist in a beehive. That's what they want mm-hmm. you to do. You're to stay in your little box and you can't come out of there because you're damaging the earth or something. This is the agenda. You're not allowed to question it. It was just like yeah. everything with COVID. You're not allowed to question the uh, <clears throat> the science and, and the experts. If you question Fauci, you were an extremist and you were a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't ask questions. It's the same thing now with this. And you know what? In Scotland today, they're ramping the COVID fear back up because we're, we're going to start trending down here in a couple of months back into the, uh, the cold and flu season. And so they will flip it again with climate change now. They'll flip it back to COVID or something else. And you're not allowed to question any of this stuff. Nothing. So the well, days of the, questioning things are, are long gone, I think. The days of questioning things are long gone. But why I brought up the latest Redux that I put up is because it's really hot right now. 
and Canada is on fire and the air quality is poor and all we're under a heat wave like no no other time in history, right? Well, the whole point of the Climate Engineers article from 2007 by an obviously approved Wilson Institute scientist who's holding the grant of the, the what you might call the father of anthropogenic global warming, the whole point was about how to geoengineer what we can do to the atmosphere, what can be sprayed in the atmosphere, how the atmosphere can be controlled so that we can stop global warming. And you, all you have to do is look above you and see the spraying in most parts of the world, day in and day out. They've been at this for a long, long, long time. But they do this floating of, you know, balloons where they put it out to the public. Are they ready for, you know, mass scale geoengineering, which we are already clearly under and have been for years, at least 25 years now, probably longer. So it's just too easy when you've got access to high science and high technology to control the weather. You know, they, I mean, they own the weather. They've, they've even bragged about it in their, one of the military papers from years ago, Owning the Weather was the title of it. So they own the weather. They have owned the weather. And we sit down here, you know, hoping that our air conditioner is going to not break and, you know. Weather weapons. We were uh -huh. actually looking at doing a uh, doing a podcast on that. Uh, and weather weapons. That's a real thing, actually. Uh, that that's yes. not that is not a a conspiracy theory. There are conspiracy theory sides to it, but weather weapons. Those are actually a real a real thing. We actually started that. I want to say it was from what I've read. I want to say it was during the Vietnam War. Is when we started that. When we started the the whole seeding of the cloud things. It was to cause torrential downpours in certain areas so we would actually have a tactical advantage, uh, I believe, uh -huh. is when they started doing that. And if you look at areas like uh, the Middle East, parts of the Middle East, specifically in the United Arab Emirates, they've got grass growing out in the middle of the desert. And the reason they have that is because they're using, well, it's not necessarily weather weapons per se, but it is geoengineering. They're uh -huh. forcing it to rain in areas uh -huh. where it wouldn't. So this is a real thing. So this is this is not some kind of crackpot conspiracy, but it actually happens. And now to what scale it happens, I don't know. But but they are quite public about it, as in uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are quite public about what they want to do. And you now have people that are within the halls of the EU that are saying, yeah, we're experimenting with geoengineering. And no, we don't know what the long term consequences of that are going to be. So uh -huh. you're just going to have to live with it. Then you've got guys like Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. Maybe not him specifically, but there are a consortium of people working with it. And you've seen this through the proposals that they've made. And now you've got the Biden administration that are echoing the same thing, saying that they want to put these big space balloons up there to block out the sun. Hold on a minute. Uh -huh. We're going to now block uh -huh. out the sun? What? Mm -hmm. We need solar panels and we're going to block out the sun? <laughs> Somebody figure this out for me. Well, that's interesting. I mean, if you look at science fiction movies from the past 40 years or longer, isn't it an interesting thing that it's always really dark? Some of the movies, you don't even really have what you call a sun, you know? Uh, and they'll even talk about it in the movie that they haven't seen the sun in dec or decades. People well, don't the remember it. The Matrix. Yeah. The, yeah. There's no sun. No. Any earlier than the Matrix, you had that. There's no sun. Even in uh, Blade Runner, there was no sun. You know, this is a key. And I, I bring up fiction because that's how a lot of people get their programming and they and, and ideas that will be brought about are normalized. Yeah. Well, we are almost at time. We've only got about 10 minutes left, and this hour has absolutely flown by. We hadn't discussed any of what we were going to discuss. It was just one of those where it just kind of rolls right off the uh, the cusp of things. And I think it was, all in all, I think it was a great conversation. Well, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. And I, I miss Bruce, though. I mean, it was great to talk to you, but yeah, I'm yeah, just used to, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I know. He will be back around, but yeah. Well, this morning, I, I subscribed to a few different things like Substacks and, and uh, mediums, things that are, uh, you know, that medium where you get different kind of articles. And you tell them when you sign up for them what kinds of things that you're interested in. And so sometimes when I do that, I pick something that is just like really way out that I may not be really interested in, but I think, well, it'd be good for me to learn about that, right? 
So one of the things that I did with Medium was I signed up. I said, oh, you can tell me things about AI and about large language models and, you know, just stuff like that that I really don't know anything about, but I'll, I'll read an article every once in a while. And something came in this morning and I read it and it got me thinking about a bigger picture than just the article. And the article was called, Why It Is Time to Start Thinking of Games as Databases. And so this was about building, and you you might know more about gaming, but I don't know anything about it. But this was interesting. It was talking about the benefits of treating relationships between entities in games as first-class citizens in a game. Intelligent agents. Imagine an NPC sitting in a space bar, minding her own business when a human player walks in. What, I'm not a gamer. What is an NPC? NPC, um, as, as far as I'm aware, um, and I wish Bruce were here for this one. Uh, an NPC is what stands for a non-player character. So it's an AI control. Yes, yeah, in the, yes. In the system. That, yes. That, that's right. Going along with the article, that would be right. So imagine an NPC sitting in a space bar, minding her own business when a human player walks in. This particular player just came back from a raid on a nearby space station and obtained a valuable artifact. This space station happened to belong to the NPC's faction. The NPC is no direct match for the player, so she decides to post a mission in the sector to take back the artifact from the player in return for good standing with the faction. Within seconds, the mission is accepted. As soon as the player clears the planet, he is ambushed and forced to surrender the artifact back to faction. So the writer goes on to say, what would it take to empower agents in games to behave like this and how artificial intelligence is rapidly advancing to the point that we should expect to see in-game agents come up with self-directed goals? And it's giving questions. So in other words, it's basically the author's point of view here is how do you train AI to be a better game player, right? Right. But what what this got me thinking about was how much time we are now spending involving the average Joe into training uh, and making AI better. We're basically being asked to teach AI how to think. See, anytime you interact with it or do chat GPT, right. Yes, they're doing they're, they're scraping the data from you and they're using that to build their algorithms. So they're right. taking it based on the actions that you input to it. And one of the things that this writer in this article was doing, he was trying he was saying we can make a better experience. We can make a better experience for the player, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought in the world, not just the artificial world of artificial intelligence and virtual realities, but basically in this world that we are given where we're an empire now, you know, we're history's actors, you you little people don't have access to anything. I, I was thinking that the really almost the only recourse, the only advantage that we have is what Alan Watt would always say is that you've got to be an individual. You have to have your own thoughts. You have to protect your mind. You have to have a firewall around your own mind. Because if you want to call the elite who manage these foundations, if you want to think of them as the programmers, they hate an individual because they can never game how the individual is going to respond in a situation. A true individual is the enemy because they can't Gamus. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that right there, I think that is going to be the game changer, if you will. I think that will be the game changer when all of this finally hits the fan, for lack mm-hmm. of a better phrase. And that is, if you look through history, if you go back and you, you look through history, nothing in history is absolute, like they're making it sound. They're making mm-hmm. everything sound now like it is 100% absolute. You cannot question it, and this is what's going to happen. If you go back through history, everything is riddled with little things that go through and throw a wrench in the works, if you will. And that's yes. what changes the course of history. It's the individual. It's the individual actions and those that stand up and actually voice their opinions. That is what changes history. Not these people, not yeah. not the overwhelming majority that say, oh, well, it's settled. No, it's not settled because we say it's not settled. <laughs> And they they have been terrified, and that's why it's so important, you know, groupthink and standardization and 
That's like you said, we, you know, the individual is the wrench in the machinery of the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. I was spending a few minutes here while you were, while you were talking, uh, I was spending a few minutes going back and I, I wanted to pull this clip. I wanted you to hear it. I, I apologize for the delay on it, but it kind of, it goes to everything you were mentioning about this peer reviewed stuff, the, mm-hmm. all of this, this peer reviewed science and, and everything else. This is a gentleman named Alan Savori, and he's talking about how science has been replaced with scientism and what they've actually done, what these institutions mm-hmm. have actually done. Take a listen to this. What is science? People talk glibly about science. What is science? People coming out of a university with a master's degree or a PhD, you take them into the field and they, they literally don't believe anything unless this is a peer-reviewed paper. It's the only thing they accept. And you say to them, but let's observe, let's think. Let's discuss. They don't do it. It's just, is it in a peer-reviewed paper or not? (laughs) That's their view of science. I think it's pathetic. We've gone into universities as bright young people. They come out of them brain dead, not even knowing what science means. They think it means peer-reviewed papers, etc. No, that's academia. And if a paper is peer-reviewed, It means everybody thought the same, therefore they approved it. An unintended consequence is that when new knowledge emerges, new scientific insights, they can never, ever be peer-reviewed. So we're blocking all new advances in science that are big advances. If you look at the breakthroughs in science, Almost always, they don't come from the center of that profession. They come from the fringe. People see it differently. The finest candle makers in the world couldn't even think of electric lights. They don't come from within. They often come from outside the brakes. We're going to kill ourselves because of stupidity. This is exactly what we were just discussing. It comes from the individual. It doesn't come from the consensus. It doesn't come from that group of absolutists. It comes from the fringes, the outside, those that think outside the box. That's the real change. That's the real driver of change. It's the individual mindset that fights back against what is the consensus. Absolutely. Right. So that is all that I had. And we are pretty much at time. So would you like to tell us, uh, we obviously, we talked about your latest podcast episode. Would you like to tell us what else you've been working on, on Cutting Through the Matrix and what you've got coming up? Well, a longtime listener has embarked on a new excerpt series. The excerpt series was an idea that was started by a long-term, a long-time listener in Canada back in the fall of 2021. And uh, I've got another listener who wanted to try her hand at videos, and she has done episode one of a series on experiments. And this first one went up yesterday, and it is called Obedience to Authority. And it's, it's Alan speaking for about a half an hour. There are different clips from different of his talks where he spoke about the Stanley Milgram experiments in the 60s and the book that he wrote that came out of those experiments called Obedience to Authority. And those are quite good. And she's just sent me a couple of more experiment-themed excerpt videos. So those will be fun to put up over the next few weeks. And I've got another podcast that is going up tomorrow. And I'm speaking with a gentleman named Osman. I've entitled this one, Osman, a diplomat's son. And I don't want to say too much, but yeah, it interesting. is interesting. He is. He has a very interesting perspective. I'll on bet things. he does. And, yeah. So I'm looking forward to posting that one. I pre-recorded that last week and I, I was quite busy doing pre-records around people's schedules, but that was fun. And I will finish the video on that today and post it tomorrow. Well, that sounds great. I, I'm actually, I'm curious about the uh, the experiment one. I'm curious, at some point, will there be an addition of the uh, the Sidney Gottlieb and the MK Ultra program? I'm, I'm curious about that one, too. Oh, well, you've just yeah. planted a seed in the mind of the long-time listener. Maybe I did, yeah. Maybe yeah, I, I did. I'm, I've kept hands off. The All of the ideas for the experiments have been hers. The It's it's all coming from them. Mm-hmm. So all, I, mm-hmm. all I'm doing is posting them. 
Mm. So. Oh, by the way, I don't, I'm sure this has absolutely nothing to do with it, but that's also a relation to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, that is the Pfizer, former Pfizer guy, the FDA, and that connection there that we've been seeing all over during the COVID pandemic. So, oh, yeah. that's right. Uh-huh. Yes, I ha- yeah, I don't, I don't think about that as often as I should, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So again, with the intergenerational thing, it's. Um, uh-huh. It's family business, I guess, just like the Soros, huh? Yeah. That's true. All right. Uh, Well, it's been absolutely fantastic having a conversation with you. Again, this is the first time that the two of us have actually just done a podcast on our own. Yes, Uh, and and I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Joe. I have too. I have too. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll see you in two weeks, yeah? Great, yes. Great. Again, that is Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I encourage all of our listeners to get over there and take a look at the treasure trove of information that they maintain, where they run the website that maintains the life collective works of the late, great Alan Watt. So again, that is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com for the website and Real History with Melissa is her podcast that is available everywhere that podcasts are sold. Thank you for being here today, Melissa. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone and have a great evening. 